Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. Why do I give my last name on these Lanyap episodes? I should just <laughs> join in this like first name only club. <laughs> it's too yeah. late. The internet knows who you are. You're they an official do. credit now. You have like yeah. official recognition. We're still able to pretend like we have anonymity because yes, I deleted my Facebook and, and I, that magically made the government stop monitoring me. You were off the grid. <laughs> oh. Whoa. I got inducted into the Southeastern Film Critics Association this week, which um, is wild since I only publish on Swampflix.com. Not a professional outlet, but you know we've been doing this podcast and this website for a long time now. So I guess this is like a legitimizing credit to our name. Yeah. I'll put the link up on the podcast notes just so you could see my little face on there, among other critics. See how fancy he is. He's so <laughs> fancy. I'm really curious if this means that like now our Swamp Flicks reviews will be considered part of like the critical evaluations on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh. You have to apply for that separately. Okay. If, if that happens, there are going to be a lot of movies with three or four reviews that are suddenly going to have four or five. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think if I ever got accredited on Rotten Tomatoes, I literally would only submit reviews that are for movies that don't get much attention. Like, does anyone need another opinion on the movie of the week from us? Probably not. I feel weird even writing little three-paragraph reviews of, like, Morbius. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what, like, the number one movie at the box office right now is. Although your article about Jared Leto is great. I have something to say about Jared Leto this week, weirdly enough. Well, I saw Morbius in the theater with oh my boy. coworker, <laughs> who is obsessed with Jared Leto, oh, and no. months ago, rented out an AMC theater so that members of her family and coworkers and friends could all gather together opening weekend and watch Jared Leto's latest dispatch uh, from the cult. On the big screen. I was gonna say (laughs) she's part of the cult. I gotta say, it was the most boring superhero movie I've seen in years. Just like really difficult to stay awake throughout it. But I felt pretty good about it because uh, I just watched him in House of Gucci recently, and I thought that he was extremely entertaining in that. And so I felt really guilty about how much fun he was in House of Gucci, doing his ridiculous Italian accent and wearing his fat suit and bald cap. Like, I was just, like, excited to see him every scene that he popped up in. So I felt very good that Morbius was his same old boring self and then had all those, like, behind-the-scenes stories about him, like, pausing production for ridiculous method acting (laughs) practices that (laughs) aided in the entertainment value of the picture in no way whatsoever. So uh, (laughs) don't go see Morbius. And uh, if you want to keep hating Jared Leto, don't watch House of Gucci either because it might win you over a little bit. I would not have gone if my coworker wasn't so sweet. She's very nice and I could not say no. But I also did not lie to her and I told her that I was very bored. (laughs) Struggled to stay awake at this noon screening. (laughs) (laughs) i guess uh i will skip ahead and say that one of the things that i watched since we all last gathered was 10 things i hate about you yeah i've never seen it i was telling him about it a couple of weeks ago and i was sort of broadly because we were it was while we were watching scream and i was kind of just talking about like the 90s in cinema (laughs) Yes. And that led to a discussion of like sort of non horror teen movies of the time, which was 
uh, largely dominated by like classic or like updated retellings of like classic literature. Mm-hmm. So you had like Romeo plus Juliet that was very uh, successful, and <laughs> that was followed by like. <laughs> Uh, you know, oh, and Ten Things I Hate About You as Shakespeare plays, but also you had Dangerous Liaisons. That's, you know, Cruel Intentions. Also Clueless. Clueless is yes. the big one. Yeah, yeah. Clueless. Clueless is the big one. <laughs> I, I knew I was missing one, but it's like my, my, like I was saying before we got on mic, my brain hasn't woken up all day, which is sad because it's already the evening. But yeah, uh, I love 10 Things I Hate About You. I love that movie so much. <laughs> and it took a little convincing because I had told him during the same conversation about other movies of that era, like She's All That, how um, not another teen movie spoofed those specific things as well. And what is so funny is that uh, whenever they're trying to get... Everybody knows about this movie. Everybody listening, right? Oh yeah, great film. Yeah. Or at least I hope so. If you don't, please watch it. It's so good. It's so it's good. It's a charmer. It's the central text in Leonard's to Cleo fandom. Yes. Oh, it sure is. <laughs> <laughs> they mentioned Bikini Kill in this movie. It was, they I was do. So, I was so pleased. Me too. <laughs> I also introduced it to someone who had never seen it, a 19-year-old, like within the last year. And she like got obsessed with Heath Ledger and I had to break the news to her. And it was the saddest Ooh. moment ever. <laughs> Do you remember whenever they're going through Kat's room to try and figure out what it is that she's into? Do you remember what other things are mentioned other than her like bikini kill CDs and her black underwear? Specifically, what might say something about her taste in men? No clue. No. It's a Jared Leto photo. It's a Jared Leto oh, photo. No! She has in her drawer. And then, the, uh, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, so it means that she likes pretty guys. And they're breaking this information to Heath Ledger. And he's like, what are you saying? I'm not a pretty guy. So, yeah, I was very shocked to have that bizarre Jared Leto awareness injection in this, like, otherwise <laughs> very wonderful 1999 teen rom-com that actually warmed my heart and was very charming but it also means that um cat has a crush on two different jokers in this movie (laughs) 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 which is kind of weird i was very shocked to learn that uh julia styles was 17 when they made this movie I would have thought older. She's so good. It's one of those movies where the teens actually look like teens. So I, I buy that. Like, it doesn't seem like there's 30 year olds playing teenagers, you know? Yeah. Every time Joseph Gordon Levitt was on screen, I was like, oh my God, he's such a baby. They are all teenagers, it seems. And I, but Julian Styles, I was just like, she is so good in this. And the next day, Kat and I were talking about how odd it was that she didn't have more of a career because you know she basically did she got typecast because she did the two other shakespeare teen movies after this which were O and macbeth a couple years later uh, i'm sorry the scottish play <laughs> oh we're doomed now uh, oh, shit. No. and then she was in those born movies and then she kind of hasn't done a whole lot since she was in hustlers was the last thing that i remember seeing her in and she was just like the journalist in that movie yeah, she has that Hillary Swank thing now where she just shows up as like a tertiary character about an hour into a movie. And you're like, oh, you're here too. Okay. And it's just, it breaks my heart because 
I think that she was one of those people who sort of got their money and retired to sort of like raise a family, which you're like, you know, good for them. But it's also sad because you'd like to see more of them. That's how I feel about Nev Campbell also, because she only shows up to do a Scream movie every few years. Uh, I just watched her in Wild Things uh, with Brittany last episode and uh, had a flood of memories of like having a crush on her in my like moody, gothy teen years. It's like, God, oh, yeah, me too. you just haven't been around. <laughs> me too, <laughs> to be honest. Was Save the Last Dance a good Julia Stiles movie? I know that it was a Julia Stiles movie. It was a Julia <laughs> Stiles movie, yes. I really that's... wanted to see that as a teenager, and it just like got by me somehow. Uh, and now it's like, I don't know if it's too late to go back. Is, is that going to be our uh, <laughs> next episode? <laughs> Possibly. I never saw it, but I do remember within the past few years that her dance from that movie got posted on like social media and people were like how did we ever think that this was like supposed to be really impressive was she like mixing <laughs> hip-hop and ballet or something um theoretically yeah theoretically <laughs> i did see it but it has been since it first came out that i saw it and at that point in time i did not have a strong movie opinions, so i could not tell you if it's good i could just tell you it exists the thing i struggle with is like Thinking back to all those teen movies, a lot of the ones you just mentioned, and, you know, stuff like Drop Dead Gorgeous and Sugar and Spice and all kinds of other stuff, it's like, were those just great years for teen cinema, or was I just the right age when they came out? Because it feels like there really was a wealth of just, like, biting, funny teen movies, and I don't know that that industry still exists anymore. No, not really. Or if it's just not marketed to me. You know, it might be out there. I think that it has come to an end as like a cinematic experience. Yeah. Uh, I think that it probably, yeah, it exists now in TV, but it's also not quite the same as it used to be. I will say for my part, you know, I've confessed before that I have and did and do and perhaps will continue to watch Riverdale. Yeah, And like, uh, there's so much of it that is so dated where it's like, even I know that this reference is like, you know, uh, kind of out of date. Like in a recent season, the kids really wanted to put on Hedwig and the Angry Inch as a musical at their school. And one of the Your 30... favorite movie. Yeah, my favorite movie. And one of those 30 year old teenagers was like, no, this movie means so much to me and my generation. I'm like, this is what the transgressive <laughs> kids were like listening to when I was a teenager, you know, 15 plus years ago. So I don't, it does make me wonder if the teen films of our youth were also not really aimed at teens either. If they were also <laughs> just completely colored by the perceptions of like their adult creators but we simply like them more. Euphoria has a similar problem uh, as far as like age references goes. Like a lot of like 90s dance hits on that show. It's like these kids would not be listening to this. Well, it's interesting how much like of the 90s and things the youths embrace. Like, I mean, I'll just be walking around and I'll see someone like in those baggy ripped jeans and flannel and like a crop top. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what year is it? <laughs> I mean, it was 30 years ago, so it is oh, vintage God. now. Oh, <laughs> God. It was. 
Yeah, we're at that part in the nostalgia cycle where I think it's come back around again. It actually was present on Riverdale at points where they had like flashbacks to their parents being portrayed by the same like actors as the contemporary generation, like but in the nineties. Skeet Ulrich cosplay? Nair draw me back in. <laughs> um I- I'll be honest, it is I-, I constantly see this recommendation on YouTube for this like Riverdale criticism video that says Riverdale settling for mediocrity. And the thing is, I understand why people hate the show. Even I'm at a point where I'm about to be like, no more, please. <laughs> However, it's not mediocre. It's quite possibly the most banana sh- shows on television. The paths that it chooses to follow narratively are so daring in a way where I'm like, I don't know why. And I I don't know how anyone could ever conceive of making this the plot that the show would follow, you know, where there's characters named Brett Weston Wallace, who's like a (laughs) and and they do basically like an entire season. That's a story that's like Donna Tartt's The Secret History, right? Like, what? Why? So I'm not going to defend it or anything, but I will say it's not mediocre. I couldn't possibly think of a stranger place for it to go than the writers do, which is, you know, unusual. But speaking of those 90s things, I did watch Scream 4 and Scream 5 since the last time we got together. And I will say, I actually think that Scream 4 might be my second favorite of the franchise. It's neck and neck with two there. Uh, It kind of always depends on which one I saw most recently. Did either of you see it when it was out? Nope. It seems to have a great reputation that I don't know that any of the other sequels have, though. Like People really go to bat for that one. Yeah, it's strange. There's a YouTuber named Zach Cherry who I guess is like kind of making his bread and butter on largely horror in theory but specifically on scream content and he actually really hates it it's his least favorite he likes it less than three but there's a youtuber named amanda the jedi who also did like a huge scream video recently because the fifth one came out and she like me ranks four really highly and i remember when it came out was like kind of the last time i was involved in like not involved in, but really paid much attention to that kind of like discourse because it came out and I watched it on a DVD that came to me through the mail on Netflix. Like it came out in 2011. I didn't get to see it in theaters. And then I got the DVD by mail. And that was the last time sort of that I did a full all film rewatch of the first three before watching it. And it was, it's so good. I think that the opening is the most clever of the openings there are things that it does that are really fascinating you know there are parts of two and even three that are inspired but four really takes it to like new heights and i also think that four is the first one since the first film where it introduced new characters that you actually care about yeah and then i've talked about scream five before both when i saw it and when i uh wrote copy on it earlier this year just a couple months ago so i won't go too in depth on that but the last two things i wanted to talk about that i watched were sam raimi films and i'll start with the one that i watched second which was crime wave it's kind of like a lost considered largely a lost film of his it was sort of post evil dead he wanted to make a bigger film and he 
made sort of this screwball comedy that has a Coen Brothers script credit where it's about a guy who works for a security firm who uh, has a very Coen Brothers-y kind of like lead character where it's more of a happenstance plot more than it's driven necessarily by the character's interests where basically every time somebody gives him a little piece of wisdom it becomes part of his internalized schema of how the world works and so he sort of gets involved in this caper where his one of his employers is going to sell the business so the other partner in the firm decides to kill that guy first and he hires these like exterminators who are actually hitmen and it's very cartoony it is a very cartoony movie where you know people are getting you know shocked and their hair is standing on end but there's a really funny bit uh where the sort of love interest character has been stood up by bruce campbell and he leaves because she's not going to put out and he stiffs her with the bill so she and our sort of protagonist are you know they're getting just enough money to to actually pay their bill by participating in the swing dance competition they start you know swing dancing for about a minute and there's like a sort of a match cut to him still dancing while they're doing dishes in their like evening wear in the back of the restaurant it's very funny it's a very funny movie although not nearly as funny as you would think from like the coen brothers and sam raimi kind of getting together and apparently that's because he did not have final edit on it oh. so there's a lot of it that i think probably would have made more sense if he had had final edit but it kind of got chopped up by the studios where some of it feels a little long in the wrong places and short in the wrong places and and like the cuts aren't made for for comedy but what actually prompted that uh crime wave rewatch was that we watched uh with some friends last weekend dark man love that movie it's so good that's his best film by far I, I actually don't agree, but I also have a weird pick because my favorite is The Gift. So Yeah, I, I don't love The Gift as much as you do. <laughs> but I also don't love Sam Raimi that much, to be honest. I like, love Darkman, The Gift. Like, when he hits my exact target. I mean, I'm not surprised by that. <laughs> that makes sense to me. <laughs> um, I really loved it. Some things that I really liked this time around were... Uh, it, it's it's weird because Darkman is, oddly enough, probably the Sam Raimi movie I've seen the most. Because for whatever reason, it was like it was constantly paired in syndication on the Sci-Fi Channel with its first direct-to-video sequel, where it was like there were periods of time where you know four or five days a month they would show Darkman from five to seven, and then Darkman two, Durant's Revenge from seven to nine. So <laughs> I've seen both of them a lot, but not since I was younger. And Darkman is so good. I think I rewatched it maybe once in 2008. And at that time, it had sort of something had happened with where I was like in my early 20s and didn't love it as much. And now I've completely come back around on it in my mid 30s to say it's great. Yeah, just the, he like really nails the like funhouse comic book aesthetic as like a visual eye. And then you have all that like universal monsters, like 1930s grotesquerie in there where it feels like a classic invisible man or like Frankenstein story. Yeah. Everything is just perfect. Like I always want to love Sam Raimi's like over the top cartoon, like slapstick genre films. And I can never quite get there, 
Mostly because I'm allergic to whatever Bruce Campbell is doing in those movies. Oh, it's boo. Like, it turns me off. Boo. <laughs> but Darkman is just perfect. We watched both of the direct-to-video sequels for an episode of this show like four years ago, and I remember nothing about them <laughs> at all. But uh, I really liked the first one a lot. Yeah, I don't remember the sequels either, even though I saw them just as much. But also, boo, Bruce Campbell is the star. Ugh. It's like, what are the worst things about Jim Carrey and how can we crank them up? I find him actively annoying. (laughs) I'm speechless. So I like Bruce Campbell (laughs) and Ted Raimi in Xena. Ted Raimi's great. He's on Sequest, which I can never get anyone to watch with me. (laughs) Sequest. But I did want to go ahead and say also that since we last met, I finished reading uh, Shishin Liu's novel, The Dark Forest, which is the second book in this sort of trilogy that began with the three body problem which i read back in november and the reason i wanted to bring that up i don't always talk about what i'm reading uh is that i was on page 433 because this novel is hefty y'all i was on page 433 reading it last week i was getting close to the end and i came across this paragraph that i would like to read to you he recalled a movie he had seen in his youth in which the characters lived in a rubik's cube world made up of countless identical cubic rooms, each of which contained a different sort of death mechanism. They passed from one room to the next endlessly. I was like, wow, I was not expecting a reference to favorite movie of the podcast. <laughs> Beloved. Um, maybe not favorite, but you know what I mean. Like, it was quite a popular episode. We could say, you know, how some podcasts say friend of the podcast. It's like Cube is a friend of the podcast, but it's not. It's just a movie that we that we all uh, talk about and reference a lot, as well as its sequels, Cube Zero and Cube Two, Hypercube. But yes, I was very pleased to discover a reference to Cube in this Chinese sci-fi novel, even if it's slightly misremembered. They don't live in the that giant Rubik's cube. If anything, they die in it. But <laughs> I just thought that that was uh, a delight, and I wanted to share it with y'all and with our audience. But um. Ali, what have you been watching? I've actually been watching a lot of uh, more recent movies. The first one that I have caught up on was uh, CryptoZoo. I finally watched hell it. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. It is great. I really, really enjoyed that movie. That animation style, so fun. All the cryptids, amazing. I love that. I've come to realize that all I ever want to do is just look at monsters. Like, I don't even think I'm a movie fan. <laughs> I just want to look at, like, creative monster designs all day. And movies just happen to be a good delivery system for that. Yeah. That is That one's got a lot wrong. of them. Yeah, there's so many good monsters in that movie. Just so many good ones. It looks like a 70s stoner's, like, notebook. Yes! <laughs> like, doodles of, like, weird creatures in the margins of a stoner's notebook 50 years ago. And I mean, like, how it starts out, like, that's definitely... Intentional. <laughs> yeah, no accident whatsoever. The fact that it starts out with these two stoners sneaking into the crypto zoo and one of them getting killed by a unicorn is so wild to me. That threw me off too because I've I really liked Dashaw's first movie as well, but it had like a more comedic tone. And like this one starts off with the stoners like kind of pontificating and then getting gored by a unicorn. So I kind of thought it was gonna be a sillier movie than it is. But it takes yeah. its, like, ethics of keeping cryptids in a zoo very seriously 
um, and treats it kind of like a straightforward action movie. Yeah. The, my friend who I was watching with, with was like, it's like Jurassic Park. <laughs> and I was like, right, you're right. right. It is like Jurassic Park. But I, I don't know, as a vaguely anti-zoo person, I was like, yeah, this is great. But yeah, it did seem like it was going to be sillier, and then it got real serious real fast. It wasn't a problem. I just yeah. had to like adjust my expectations after the tone shifted. I was like, oh, okay, we're actually going to take these like ethical problems very seriously. Yeah. I'll have to get on board for that. But the animation is just badass throughout. It looks really great. Yeah, it looks so good. And, you know, in a time where everything is 3D animated and, yeah, <laughs> it's just real nice to see something just beautifully and uniquely animated like that. You know, we talked about how animation is great because you can just do whatever you want. And I feel like this movie really takes it to that level of going wild and being really stylistic. And I love that. It's very dreamlike in a lot of ways. It's great. I also watched The Night House, finally. And I did enjoy that one. You know, it wasn't my favorite that I I watched recently, but I enjoyed it a lot. I had a lot of fun with, of course, like, the acting, but, you know, she's, like, investigating the house and, like, all these mysteries that her husband left behind. And she's going through these weird notebooks and, like, occult books. And the thing that really stuck with me is, like, the smallest, like, silliest thing. She, like, flips through this occult book and there's, like, a note written in it. And it's, like, all about, like, mazes and stuff. And the note at the top just says, basic trickery. And (laughs) I am just, like, so sold with that. I am just like, oh, it's basic trickery. Um So that was something I latched onto that is like not a normal person thing to latch onto, but that's how I watch movies. I mean, all the like design stuff with the house was like very oh, cool. It's so like, cool. The ghosts sort of like manifesting in negative space oh. like, in the house's design. Oh, that was really cool. So good. But there's like something about it that like they could have pushed it even further. Yeah. It, it just feels like it was like missing an extra oomph. It, yeah, it really does. I mean, like there's some really great dream sequences and some really good like spooky stuff happening spooky sex yeah yeah there is that <laughs> but yeah it needed that extra oomph rebecca hall's great in it though i yes. always hear that she's like a great actress but i never see her like this where she's like really showing off yeah and uh this is like the first time i got it i was like oh yeah okay she is really powerful on screen i love how she went from being you know super spooked like desperate scared but also with like everybody she knew just being this total jerk oh yeah i love it's very thorny yeah Yeah. uh my favorite also is that parent teacher conference where she just like smacks down that mother and i'm like oh this is too relatable (laughs) this is too relatable this is what every teacher like wants to do to ridiculous parents it's just take them down a couple notches so yeah i really enjoyed it i yeah i had a lot of fun with that one the next one and probably my favorite uh first time watch that is catching up from last year is i finally watched the french dispatch oh nice yeah it's so good uh 
I totally agree with you, Brandon, that it's one of his best in a while. And it's just so funny. Yeah, I just laughed. Yeah. <laughs> like the whole time. Yeah. I had like forgotten that jokes were like one of the main things I look for from him. Yeah. Until that movie and it's just like constant visual gags. I'm like, oh yeah, he's very funny. And just like, uh, not the first thing you think about because people like to fixate on his like visual fussiness and everything else. But it's it's funny because so much of his visual fussiness does fit into the jokes, but people seem to not focus on the humor of it. Like a lot of it is for the vis- visual of the jokes. Um, but this one cranked it up to like massive, massive amounts. It is weird for someone that goofy to be sort of like brushed off as pretentious because those two things don't really go hand in hand i don't think yeah i mean he is pretentious but he's also goofy about it like it doesn't seem like he takes his pretension as seriously as people think he does you know like it feels like he'll reference you know really obscure like french authors but at the same time is totally making a joke about people who do that yeah Definitely. Which is great. Especially teenagers who think they're smarter than they really are. Oh, man. They're like usually the characters who do that. And there's a lot of that so in this one. So good. T- yes. <laughs> so yeah, I, I really liked that one. Um, it's a shame that it was not accessible for me to watch last year because it definitely would have made my top of list for sure. Not that it needed help because it still made it on the, the big old Swamp Flicks did list, it? right? <laughs> I, I don't think it did. It did. I thought it made it. No, you're probably right. I for- I had forgotten more than two people saw it, <laughs> which is what it needed. <laughs> yes, to get it was. Edge. It was number seven. Okay, I had completely forgotten that it was on that list. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Should have squeezed in a space for Crypto Zoo. We would have had a perfect list. I know. I know. I agree. Sorry, I let y'all down on that one. It's all right. There's always next year. Oh yeah, we got to strategize the podcast. The year of Jackass Forever. <laughs> I, that doesn't bode well, Brandon. I mean, it <laughs> might to be for everybody else, but I don't think I have the same like fondness that the rest of everybody else does. I think the crew is evenly divided. I think it's like half jackass excited and half jackass adverse. <laughs> I would call myself jackass apathetic. Yeah, that's apathetic, exactly what well. I was going to say is I'm pretty apathetic about it. It doesn't meet my requirements for like trash, quote unquote, reality TV um, necessarily. I don't understand that position. I'm sorry. Given how in your face it is. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, I could see being apathetic to it if you just like don't engage at all. Yeah. But see, if you actually watched thing. it. Yeah. If you actually watched it, I don't see how that's possible. That's basically what I'm saying. Anyway. Um, and the last thing I watched was the, uh, new Kenneth Branagh, Agatha Christie adaptation, Death on the Nile. Oh, how was it? I'm kind of excited. It's one of those movies where, you know, if you were to watch it with, like, your bland family members on, like, a holiday day after, like, eating dinner with them, they would love it. And you'd be like, huh, I was entertained. You know, it felt very average, but at the same time, I loved how artificial everything looked, if that makes any sense. Like, I loved how it doesn't even look like they tried to make it, like, realistically function in the world, and he really appreciated that. It looked like there's a lot of green screen compositing. Yeah, there was, but, you know, in the way that I feel like makes it great, like very like old school Hollywood, like painted backdrops, except these were green screened, you know, and 
I think my biggest thing with it is a lot of the times it just felt like a bummer rather than being actually fun, which I know, like, oh my gosh, it's Murder Alley, of course it's a bummer, but I don't think that's what people go into, like, Poirot wanting. Like, yeah, there's a lot of fun going on, but I think that was my, my big thing with it, other than, you know, narratively, it's it's kind of all over the place, which is fine. Did you see the first one? I did not. Because I saw the first one and enjoyed it, but I, I know that that was not a terribly popular opinion. But it uh, Agatha Christie, like, cozy mysteries are, like, the entirety yeah. of my wheelhouse. So yeah. I was like, yeah, I love this. And I thought it was really well done. But I'm curious, you know, how this one is going to be, considering that I did like that one. But most people seem to either be apathetic or negative on this one. I'm pretty apathetic. Like, it was a good Lazy Day movie for me being like, I want to watch something, but I don't want to think too hard, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It was just, there's something about it that kind of took a little bit of the fun too seriously. Um, yeah, so that's that's been it. Brandon, what have you been, what have you been consuming media-wise? You mean besides Morbius? Yeah, besides uh, Morbius. <laughs> I just keep going back to movie. watch Morbius every couple days. <laughs> I, have, I have no time on my schedule for anything else. Unlike Morbius and Death on the Nile and probably Jackass Forever, uh, <laughs> I did see a movie that will likely be on our collective best of the year list. I'm going to call it early. Uh, I saw Everything Everywhere all at once at the theater yesterday. Oh, oh I've been wanting to see that so bad. Highly acclaimed. Everyone loves it. And uh, I'm not going to have a unique opinion on it for that exact reason. Uh, it's very good. I really liked the Daniels farting corpse movie when they made that a few years ago. Uh, Swiss Army Man. Even as someone who enjoyed that, I'd still think it's fair that everyone's saying it's a step. this is a step up. I don't know. It's just Michelle Yeoh jumping around different alternate timelines, becoming every Michelle Yeoh you ever wanted to see on the screen. I actually watched a 80s Hong Kong action movie she was in the night before called Heroic Trio. And it was like really cool seeing her doing the same kind of like fight choreography in both movies uh, 40 years apart um, or 30 years apart, rather. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. And I would even call this movie maybe the best performance I've ever seen from her just because it allows her to have so much range. Like she plays so many different varied versions of herself. She does dramatic, she does silly, she does uh, badass, <laughs> and it all feels great. I don't know. I, I'm not going to have a unique take on it. The one thing that like it really reminded me of was like if Michelle Gondry directed The Matrix. Oh, wow. Which I mean is a high compliment. So I recommend checking that out. I, I don't know if y'all are going back to the theaters yet, but no. uh, it's early <laughs> enough in the year that it'll be on streaming at some point. Uh, I did watch one on streaming as well that I thought was very cute and fun called Deadly Cuts. Uh, it's streaming on Hoopla. If you have a library membership through Hoopla, it's an Irish comedy set in a hair salon. And it's one of those like quirky character ensemble comedies, like strictly ballroom or sorted lives, or like maybe a Christopher guest movie, like best in show where there's just like a wide range of really ridiculous people often saying like really crass things in a very cute way. <laughs> like it's like so filthy that you don't notice. I don't know if it's the accents or 
just how wholesome everything feels. But like two seconds later, you're like, that's the filthiest thing I've heard in days. And they're all trying to compete with the big city competition at this um, televised hair salon event called Ah Hair. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that's like a very like slobs versus snobs save the rec center kind of like template. So it's very familiar comedy. And I think all that stuff is great and it could have been totally fine just being that. But then they also start killing people at first by mistake. And then later through as retribution, Uh, they start killing these like politicians and gangsters and like competing hair salon people um, that get in their way to like winning this (laughs) hair competition. I found the whole thing very charming and very familiar. Like it, it felt like the kind of movie that, had it come out in like the days of like blockbuster video rentals, um, it would have had like a cult following. But instead, it's just you know sitting right there in Hoopla, and probably no one will remember it in six months. It sounds fun. Yeah, it does sound fun. I enjoy those types of movies that it's just like suddenly it escalates to murder. I don't know if there's something about that premise. Eating Raul. Yeah, exactly. Eating yeah. Raul. Maybe I'm a messed up person that I'm just like, this speaks to me somehow. I was just watching it thinking like, I would have totally enjoyed this if it was just quirky hair salon people telling dirty jokes. Like I would have yeah. been totally fine without the murder. Uh, it felt like they kind of needed a hook to get more eyes on the screen. Mm. Um, but it works in the context of the movie that they're also killing people with their scissors and hair dryers, <laughs> gels, and other products. I take the central monster figure and I make it the saddest figure in the tale. The ghost in Devil's Backbone is not the all-powerful, terrible ghost that appears and you're going to be scared of. He's a poor kid that you feel pity for. And the humans are the monsters. In Pan's Labyrinth, the monsters in the labyrinth and in the, in the uh, tests are nothing compared to the captain. And in Kronos, again, the vampire is a poor devil. Is the saddest vampire ever made. And you're not... This is not vampire Lestat. This is not... Uh, an all-powerful vampire that can um, sparkle and stop cars, you know, is is a really is a poor guy that is licking the floor of a bedroom. For this episode, I made everybody watch Del Toro's first feature film, Kronos. It is an interesting take on the vampire tale. It starts out with this alchemist who is trying to create a device to have immortality you know, like alchemists do. And basically, he's uh, successful in it, we find out. And then, like, years after the fact, there's, I guess, an earthquake? They didn't really explain what caused the building to collapse. But his building collapses. They find him and his body looking, like, pale and marbled and just disgusting looking with his heart being pierced and they uh go through and sell and liquidate all his belongings that were in his house and as they say like nobody revealed what the contents were so from there we go to an antique shop that is run by this man who has his granddaughter in his care and he of course unsuspectingly has the device in his care he ends up using it 
and it sort of affects him like an addiction, and slowly it's revealed that he craves blood. And also, during this time, there are a couple of Americans, American expats, who are trying to find the device so that the father can have immortal life, or the uncle, it's his uncle, that can have immortal life, even though he's chronically ill and just slowly dying. So it feels like a, uh, it feels like a lost cause on that end. Yeah, so the grandpa is turning into a vampire slowly. There's these Americans on their trail, one of them played by Ron Perlman, uh, who does such a good job of playing this, like, douchey American bro. Oh my gosh. Yeah, eventually there's this big fight standoff for the device, and it's smashed, and we have this really touching end of the grandpa surrounded by like his wife and his granddaughter and he's just you know dying and yeah it's just I really enjoyed this and it felt very much like this of course is what's to come from Del Toro um I know y'all had seen it before right I had kind of tried to watch it a couple of times and it's not that it's a bad movie it's actually a great movie but it's a little soporific especially early on and i kind of fell asleep the first time i tried to watch it it kind of reminds me of like a really good bedtime story and it's like spooky and has a hook and like once you get like your kind of claws and like what the setup is it's kind of tempting to like drift off (laughs) in the middle of it Uh, so i really like this movie but it also makes me very sleepy watching it (laughs) but in a good way yeah i would say you know, like all Del Toro stuff, it's very fairy tale esque. Like, I feel like that's kind of his whole jam is can this be a fairy tale or a dark fairy tale? But this one's kind of like familiar in two ways because it has that sort of familiar bedtime story fairy tale vibe that he always does. But also because it was made in the mid 90s, it has a very 90s visual warmth to yes. it and its lighting. It actually really mind, reminded me of Dark Man, which I thought <laughs> yeah, was strange. It was uh, There's a lot of it that it had in common because I had just watched it and part of it is that sort of 90s film glow, but there's also yeah. sort of like the climactic rooftop battle between, you know, our uh, hero, our anti-hero and his like he never hurts anyone he's our hero he's our wholesome grandpa i guess my reference points were very um television specific like i was thinking of like so much like everything between like tales from the crypt and wishbone yeah. like anything that's like candle lit uh and has that like kind of warm glow to it from around the 90s um it kind of makes this feel instantly familiar because we used to watch so much content in that same color palette. So I've seen this once before. I, I'm guessing after Pan's Labyrinth came out, it probably got a push, like a second video release or something. And, you know, Pan's Labyrinth was the first time I remember hearing about him, so I would have been, like, digging around for his earlier films. Yeah. But it feels like something I've probably watched, like, hundreds of times on, like, VHS or something, even though that definitely did not happen. Sorry, Boomer. I, I interrupted you. Um, You were talking about the comparison between dark man and the battle on the roof between our sweet grandpa vampire our grandpire (laughs) 
That was kind of it. I kind of wanted to imagine, you know, before the ending came, I kind of wanted to imagine a world where he sort of ran off and joined Darkman in his, like, pursuits of revenge. (laughs) But the only other thing was just that that climactic rooftop battle takes place with, like, kind of a, you know, there is an element of, like, class warfare going on in both of them in the sense that, like, you have this man who's so rich, he's just, like clinging to barely life in this movie uh he's like got himself basically in a refrigeration unit like uh guy pierce in prometheus just like trying to hang on long enough to get this like mythical device to keep him alive you know and, and the same thing is occurring with dark man although of course like all all uh, movies like made in the late 80s early 90s in the wet and like the u.s at least uh the villain is a real estate developer, just like in real life. <laughs> I like the device itself. It's really cool. Yes. You know what other thing like jumped out at me as like a visual comparison piece was the inside of the device when they show like yeah, the, the inner room working scale yeah. of the mechanics. Um, it reminded me of Rita Repulsa's spaceship on Power Rangers. Yes. <laughs> uh huh. Just the really exaggerated, like, golden mechanics of the inside. Yeah, 100%. I get that. Yeah, it's very, like, kind of clock punk, but not too crowded. It's just barely yeah. enough. And it's got yeah. that big, weird, creepy, pulsating monster in the middle and a big, glowing gem at the top, like a, yeah. like a supervillain base. I also just like the little... Like, it's so unnerving in and of itself. Like, I thought for being, you know... I was going to say low budget, but it was one of the Mexican films with the highest budget, which is, you know, saying something about the Mexican film industry and how low budgets are there. But just for a low budget movie, for everything to look great effects wise, in my opinion, like I love the body horror. I love the little little device like singing its claws into people. Yeah, and like y'all were talking about like the inside of the device just being simultaneously like mechanical and grotesque and gold and shiny and also gross. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed all of that. But yeah, it seems like sort of a great reference point for just Del Toro's thing. You know, like kid navigating this horrifying world, some supernatural element. And some entitled white man <laughs> being the villain. If we're going to talk mimic, we got cockroaches. Like, there's a lot here that he does play with later on. And we were talking about how public opinion on him has soured. But I've always really, really enjoyed everything I've watched by him. So, I, I don't know if, if y'all are as Del Toro positive as I am. but Yeah, I'm pro. But I haven't seen everything. Like I, I still haven't yeah. seen like uh, Crimson Peak, which I think is the biggest oversight. I really like that. I one. love that one. Yeah, it's very like trashy gothic novel. It's amazing. Okay, so first off, this sent me down a uh, Ron Perlman rabbit hole. Did y'all know he is seventy one? I know, right? It's so wild to me, and he was like. In his 40s, making this movie, which he does not, like, it's kind of like he went from being, like, super young looking to just waking up one day and being a grizzled old man. That fucked me up looking at pictures of Del Toro on set, because Del Toro was, if you look at pictures of him and Ron Ron Perlman at the premiere, 
Del Toro looks like a baby. Like, <laughs> he he looks so good. Was, was like given a blank check. Yeah, he's he's got a baby face already. So, but he was like thirty years old or something when this movie premiered. So I was just like, <laughs> I don't know. I was like flabbergasted by how young he looked without the beard. Yeah. Uh, I would say that Ron Perlman does look forty-one to me in this movie. I kind of, I get the maybe that's like the character work because I do buy him as someone who has just been waiting and waiting for this older relative to die so he can finally inherit and move on. And he doesn't have like the weariness of a man in his twenties. He has the weariness of a man who just crossed that border into 40 and is now wondering if he's wasted his life waiting to get this rhinoplasty. <laughs> and, you know, is is like, you know, fuck it. If he wants, you know, I, I love the scene where he's just like, he just kills our lead. Or tries yeah. to. Just attempted murder. He's like, well, <laughs> you know, my uncle wants me to do this and this. And you're saying it's because he wants to live forever? Fuck it. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I found interesting is I was like wondering because, you know, he was in this and he was in City of Lost Children. I was like, how many freaking languages does Ron Perlman speak? One, he only speaks English. Like, he doesn't speak Spanish. I mean, part of it is like he does speak English in this movie because Del Toro thought his Spanish was so bad. Like his line readings that it was just like, you know what? You're going to be an angry American that speaks Spanish badly. And I love that. Yeah, it works for the role. He sounds very condescending yeah. uh, whenever he speaks in Spanish. Yeah, it's so great. He is not having a good time no. just hanging around. Yeah, for some reason, he does not enjoy Mexico City as much as I did when I was there. It's a shame. Yeah, so, you know, that Ron Perlman fact, I was like, are you serious? Like, you've just been in these movies in an entirely other language as, like, the only American on set just doing your job. I love it. Good job. Well, he has such a distinct, like, caricature of a face. Yeah, I could see these, like, European directors wanting to use him and then going out of their way. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, okay, there's gonna be a language barrier. I don't care. Like, I, I need to get this face in my movie. It's what I see when I close my eyes for this part. <laughs> yes. Uh, working around him. Did either of you watch the Del Toro sort of introduction? that's on the Criterion channel. I actually watched this on HBO Max. It had a different intro, I think. What was the intro to that one? Was it Del Toro just talking? It was just him talking about how excited he was to make a movie and how it was like this like really sweet love letter to his own relationship with his grandmother. And he Mm -hmm. mentioned how excited he was to be able to open with a crane shot. Oh, he's like, shot the crane shot first day. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I was very amused uh, that he mentions, you know, that his sort of contribution to vampire cinema was not, in his words, Winona Ryder and Brad Brad Pitt kissing, which I thought was very funny because it's like he's not even thinking about the same, like one movie. He's like combining Bram Stoker's Dracula, which had Winona Ryder and Interview with a Vampire, which had Brad Pitt into one movie, both of which were were contemporary with this one, which makes sense. But it's very funny to me because, you know, Ron Perlman then was, of course, in uh, Alien Resurrection with Winona Ryder. Ryder, yeah. Although I'm only saying that as an introduction to the fact that we all know Ron Perlman from our favorite science fiction franchise because of his appearance in Star Trek Nemesis, right? I know Ron Perlman from one of my favorite trashy 80s TV shows, 
Beauty, Beauty and, and the Beast, Beast oh. with Linda Hamilton, who is a babe. Yes. I love that show. <laughs> I love that people still tweet pictures of cats that look like Ron Perlman as yes. if that hasn't been established decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> that he is His a cat, cat man. Yeah, I was going to say, like, they obviously did not watch the show. Unfortunately, we know what yeah. he looks like. Unfortunately for them, because they are missing out on a treat. Yeah, so I did watch some of those, and the Ron Perlman one was great because he did talk about like not knowing Spanish, um, and going there and being on a entirely Spanish language production. But he also mentioned that how he was hired for this movie is Del Toro wrote him a gushing letter asking Aww. him to be in this movie and was talking about like all of these performances Ron Perlman was in that he loved and Ron Perlman was just like okay <laughs> and I was like I love this because of like any like famous filmmaker that you think about who has like this auteur vision like Del Toro really seems like the sweetest person honestly he just seems like such a nice guy. <laughs> the dude just loves making movies. That's yeah, all he wants he to do. Yeah, he just loves it. I also watched um, on it, he, his like tour of Bleak House, his like production place slash like- Museum. Yeah, museum. And he's just giddy and a super nerd and being like, I just love all of these things. And here's all of the rooms in my house set up exactly how I've always wanted. And, you know, it's just like this kid, like, going around being like, I'm sorry, I can't show you everything. <laughs> we'll come back. I promise. Um, and I was like, oh, Del Toro. He also seems like the kind of kid that was, like, really sensitive watching spooky monster yes. movies. And, like, he's been, his whole life, all he's been doing is finding a way to point out how sad and sympathetic all these monsters are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Creature from the Black Lagoon, like, obviously. Yeah. I love it. Because, you know, you watch those movies and you're like, well, what did the monster do wrong other than exist? It's really good. I mean, even this take on the vampire tale, you're not really, like, scared that he's going to kill anybody i guess there's that brief moment where he considers draining his granddaughter towards the end but like for the most part the vampire isn't scary it's just like man this sucks (laughs) there's that really pathetic moment where he like licks blood off the bathroom floor at a party pathetic feel bad for the guy yeah and you know you could even see like i mean just the acting there of him looking at his like bleeding granddaughter and just like the agony of being like, oh, I want to, but I'm not, but I want to. So good. I I, just, I love this granddaughter-grandfather relationship. Like, she builds a place for her vampire grandpa, her grandpire, to sleep in her, like, run-down toy shed on the top of their building. Like, so good. I like her as an audience surrogate, just kind of quietly observing him and like feeling worse as he gets worse. Like just like us standing on the stairwell, looking down on him as he like attaches the device. Basically looks like it's like shooting heroin on the staircase Mm -hmm. and it's like pathetic and upsetting. And we're like viewing it from her standpoint, but she also doesn't have much of a personality really. Yeah. She's just there to ground us, I guess. Like, 
we feel worse because the one like good relationship he has is with this like child who cannot help him because he's gotten in way over his head. Yeah. I thought she did a very good job like selling like that concern. Yeah. I also kind of want to talk about him just like up and leaving the mortuary. <laughs> And, like, yeah, the suit on backwards because it's one of the suits that are ripped down the back. And... Wait, explain to me why the suit was backwards. So I never fully got that. Okay, yeah. Whenever you dress a corpse, it's got rigor mortis, and it's easier to just have a suit you put on backwards rather than have to unbutton and like, yeah. It's basically like the front is all one piece, and yeah. it fastens at the back under back, the body. Yeah. So it's like a really elaborate tuxedo shirt that you would see on like a Redditor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it is like all of that, but it's sewn in place and then place, they fasten yeah. it in the back and they had taken mm-hmm. it off of his corpse to like cremate him. But then he got out and put it on in the only way he knows how, which is to, you know, put the buttons in front of him. Does that make sense? No, I get it now. I still have questions about Freddy Got Fingered connections uh, with the backwards suit, because it's the only other movie I've ever seen that referenced in. But uh, that one's just for me to ponder, not for y'all. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not like we're not all fans of Freddy Got Fingered here, right? I mean, I am a big fan, but I wouldn't expect y'all to have to think about it. I have never (laughs) seen it, so I'm sorry, y'all. It's a work of art. It's something. It's an absurdist masterpiece. (laughs) I, I can't even say it's bad. Even though it's I, great. I think it is, but I also think it's, there's something about it. I, I do think that it deserves to be seen, but it is also like nauseating and gross. <laughs> I just could not avoid that visual connection because I cannot think of another movie where someone wore a full backwards suit for that long. Because <laughs> once he breaks out of the morgue, uh, he is in his backward man suit for most of the rest of the film. Yeah, it's that I just left the mortuary chic he's got going on. That's his like iconic like monster look, right? Because yeah. before then, he starts to look pretty virile once he starts using the device. But then he's got the backwards suit, and then his skin starts peeling off. Yeah, because he's got the new marble skin under it. It looks like a root vegetable that was like slightly peeled to me. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, he was like a grazed radish or something. <laughs> that bright white spot peeking out. But that, that's when he starts like really becoming like an iconic movie monster. Because other than yeah. that, it's basically just the device is the main visual standout piece. I think that we should all agree that if you turn the like dial on a clockwork thing and it puts out a bunch of sharp pieces, you should put it down, <laughs> right? Like drop it, drop oh, yeah. it. <laughs> and if you do that once or twice and you start craving blood, you know you you messed up. You know you gotta tell someone. Something else that freaked me out was um, the drunk stranger in the bathroom when they first find all that nosebleed blood on the counter is really chill about touching other people's blood blood with their bare hands. Yeah. Which, especially for the 90s, I think is pretty alarming. But yeah, just very casually like brushing this blood around on the counter uh, into the sink. (laughs) It's like, wow, that is brazen. Yeah. So, I think... It's on the nose, but I also kind of like the fact that his name is Jesus. Jesus Grease. Gray Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was very um, on the nose, but fun. Yeah, like if we're going to talk about old school monster movies, like there's nothing subtle about him. And, you know, obviously Del Toro loves them. 
And it helps that he frames the movie through a child's POV, mm-hmm. in which case you can get away with a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. You can be really sentimental. You can be really on the nose. And it fits in the like tone. And I think that's probably part of the reason why people are just like, oh, I'm so over it with Del Toro, because he doesn't bother with subtlety. Yeah. Yeah. Which, in some ways, I think subtlety is a little overrated, especially if you're, you know, making this style of movie. I think another thing, too, is just that he's been making this style of movie for 30 years now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, eventually people are going to get tired and turn on you. It's true. I don't know. They it's feel true. They all feel very distinct to me. Personally, you know, I, I, you know, this movie and Pan's Labyrinth are very different, Mm -hmm. you know, and Devil's Backbone is very different. Mimic. I want to say yes and no. And Blade 2 is very similar. (laughs) Blade 2 might be my favorite movie from him. I have to think about this. (laughs) I think it's him at the height of his power. I, I can't say that I disagree, actually. (laughs) It's so good. I mean, I'm always going to love Pan's Labyrinth. I'm just... I just will. I think that's a solid contender. Yeah, definitely. I love Mimic. I, I can't help myself. Oh, Mimic is so good. I just saw that for the first time and I really enjoyed it. I think both Mimic and Blade 2 have that thing where like Del Toro's always going to do his thing. It's kind of cool sometimes when a studio pushes back on him a little bit. I don't know. I, I, I find it kind of interesting when people's like autorism shines through when they don't have free reign to do whatever they want. Yeah. And both of those movies have that tension between, like, sort of mainstream filmmaking and, like, deeply strange personal art. I mean, I've said it here before, just sometimes the best thing you can do for a famous director is tell them no. Like, I think that's how some directors would get good movies made again, you know? Because I think once they're at the time of, I can do anything I want, you just got to tell them no. They just need someone standing there to be like, don't. Yeah, people are getting a lot of big checks to make their Netflix awards contender movies right now, and I don't think you could argue that any of them are making their best film in that environment where they're just getting like tons of money and no pushback. Yeah. Then again, I don't think he had a fun time making Mimic uh, for Miramax and the Weinstein Company. Yeah. Uh, it sounded like a fucking miserable experience, and I'm sure he would rather take the Netflix cash in if he could get one and yeah. just make whatever he wants. And it does kind of seem like Mimic, and I hate to say this, Mimic feels like a post-Scream horror movie with its like sort of Miramax credentials and its sort of like slick new ideas. But it does not feel very much like a Del Toro movie. Really? I feel like there's a lot of Del Toro going on. Visually, yes. Well, even like thematically, narratively. Like you've got the little boy who's basically our view in this world and he's with his like older relative you've got you know him in peril you got the bugs obviously because cockroaches i guess i don't remember a little boy being the pov character and i just watched that movie i remember the two little kids going to collect specimens in the subway yeah he's the, he's the kid that like is hearing the monster and oh like, the that tapping, kid tapping, i forgot tapping, tapping and he's like mr funny shoes you are correct i uh i, I was thinking of different children yeah because <laughs> there are multiple children in that one but yeah i mean it's true he hasn't just been making the same movie i mean pacific rim is definitely not chronos or pan's labyrinth true 
It's also not particularly good. I like Pacific Rim, so <laughs> we're going to disagree. I will slot right here in the middle and say that I didn't finish it. Whoa. You know, it was interesting to see him this last year put in maybe a little bit more serious work with Nightmare Alley. So I, I am curious like where he's going to go. I wish you liked that movie more just so you could rebrand your name I know, uh, to right? Nightmare Alley. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I can still do it. It's fine. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I think you need a cape and a mask yes. <laughs> so you can run around in the middle of the night. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's enough people out there that would agree. Like, oh yeah, that was that girl. <laughs> It needs to be a separate persona, like, by day I'm Allie, by night I'm Nightmare Allie. Well, you know, next time, next time I'm around, Brandon, I'll, I'll be sure to bring my cape and mask, just, just to be prepared. I would be delighted to see you be a total nightmare, <laughs> yes. As far as, like, the uh, sentimental side of him goes, too, I think it's very funny that this doubles as a Christmas movie. Oh my oh, god, yeah! right? Lots of beautiful shots of the Christmas tree and, like, a lot of background, like, Christmas mood setting. It's also a New Year's movie, though. Oh, true. That's where he has his bathroom moment. Yeah. But yeah, I really enjoyed revisiting this. Like I said, it reminded me a lot of TV that I really enjoyed as a youth and instantly felt familiar because of that. It even had like a lot of fade to black transitions between yes. scenes. Like you could easily slot in TV commercials. <laughs> like he leaves your room to do that. Just like Cube. Just like Cube. Yes, just that like Cube. also feels like TV. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked this one, and I am glad that we did it. Same, same. This is a pro Del Toro pod. Well, uh, next week on the show, we're going to do a bunch of anime basics. We're going to like watch some really like introductory level anime films. Good stuff, though. I- I'm finally yeah. watching Akira for the first time. Yay! Yeah, how do you think? What do you think? I was shocked by what it is versus what I expected it to be. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. It's very overwhelming. Made me a little sleepy like Kronos uh, somewhere in the, the meaty middle. But uh, I, I very much enjoyed it. And I, I understand its accolades. Like, I get it. But we also, like, watched nothing but the classic, like, everyone agrees these are great anime movies for the next episode. I'm curious what those are. I'm curious to find <laughs> out. Because well, Akira, obviously, is one that I would say uh, yeah. constitutes that. The other ones were a Studio Ghibli movie and a Satoshi Kon movie. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm going to assume Perfect Blue. That's the one. And I'm going to <laughs> guess My Neighbor Totoro. Totoro. No. Oh, wait. Spirited Away. Think harsher. Oh. More violent. Princess Mononoke. That's the one. Yeah, I that's a good that choice. One. <laughs> that's one of my favorites. And we picked one OVA, which I feel like is what really... If we get if we get anywhere into like what anime nerds actually watch, we watched uh, Vampire Hunter D. Oh, okay. Which I feel like is uh the closest we get to getting really nerdy stuff. But I did look up like a couple lists of like, you know, best thirty five anime movies of all time, and all four of the movies were on there. So it's like okay, we we picked some pretty basic shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's an introduction level class. It's exciting though. I'm excited too. As someone who knows very little about anime and has only learned anything recently. I uh, I say go for it. That's exactly how I am, too. I've seen some basic things, and every time I watch something that I really like, I always preface it with, like, I'm not an anime person, but I really enjoyed this. Because I feel like saying you like anime means you have a whole oh, personality yeah. I cannot 
um, attest to. Yeah, it yeah. was very <laughs> funny <laughs> when we were watching um, Neon Genesis and then later uh, Madoka Magica. Uh, I would always draw the curtains first. And Matt laughed at me. I was like, I don't want anyone to know. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I mean, for all the animes I like, I would still say I'm not an anime person because yeah, that could see in a whole realm of feeling underqualified. It's daunting. Yeah. It's like, sure. I love Sailor Moon, have loved Sailor Moon basically since it came out, but it's not my whole personality, and I have not... There's a lot that I haven't gone through. I might be the biggest anime person here on this podcast, but that does not mean anything in the world of anime nerds. I want to say The Cat Returns is the only anime movie we've ever done on the podcast We did Paprika. Before. Oh, Paprika, and yeah. they were both your selections, They were, right? so once again, <laughs> I'm the biggest anime person on this podcast. And that is saying nothing. <laughs> it's an easy alley oop. Yeah. That's your third personality. Alley, Nightmare, Nightmare Alley, and, and alley oop. That's like when I, I play <laughs> basketball <laughs> really badly. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, check out swapflix.com. I'm sure we're reviewing stuff. We're now SEFCA approved <laughs> so you have to listen to us now and send us your uh, screeners oh yeah we need we're a fish we need screeners and to be pay us just like somebody as soon as they get legit they want free things thrown at them exactly <laughs> i'll take as much free stuff as i can get oh yeah well, i couldn't sleep a wing for trying i saw the rising of the sun You're the one. You're the one.